You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do we still live in a free country? Ask yourself that question. Really think about it. Don't just make it a rhetorical question. Really, really think this one through. Do we live in a free country? We have certainly been led to believe for a long time that the answer is obvious. In fact, you will know that when you were a kid, perhaps even, you would say in a moment of defiance, it's still a free country to somebody when they try to tell you what you couldn't do or you couldn't say. But is it really? Given what we've seen from the government apparatuses for the last 12 months or so, uh, I think we have to ask that question and come to the answer that right now it is not, in fact, a free country. If the government can tell you that you cannot go see relatives, friends, colleagues, if the government can shut down your business on a whim with no reason other than it says so, it's no due process, it's their decision, your business is shut down. If the government can force your children, perhaps, to get vaccinated, which is something that has not yet happened, but people are seeing that it will likely happen. If the government can tell you you can't go to church and gather or go to temple and gather or mosque with your co-religionists and celebrate your faith. And if the government can tell you you're not allowed to breathe fresh air without obstruction and frustration. Are we really in a free country? I want you to think this one through. I want you to spend time on it. I think the answer is right now, no. We are not. And it's also not just going to get better. I I believe that we have been lulled into a false sense of this being temporary. Aspects of it certainly will be. There will be turning the pressure on, turning the pressure off. They'll elevate it, then they'll lower it a little bit. Then That's what they've been doing all along. And they say it's because of the data, the science, right? That's what the Fauciites tell you. But you may have seen over the weekend, Wall Street Journal even, not some left-wing publication, based on the global vaccination rate. Remember, there is here in America, and then there's the rest of the world, based on global vaccination rates and based on the rapidly emerging new strains of COVID-19, We are on track right now to still have COVID as a problem for years to come, perhaps seven to ten years, perhaps decades. They don't know. And you're already seeing people refer to the pandemic becoming an epidemic, a seasonal scourge that pops up similar to, yes, the flu. You're already seeing people making this case. And you also see this with the otherwise bizarre demand that you have to continue to mask up and social distance after you're vaccinated. Do you have to avoid crowds after you get a measles vaccination? No, of course not. Measles still exists, though, and there are occasional outbreaks of it. But we understand that that's a risk we are willing to run. See, this is where the fight is. The lockdowners, the left. They've created this world in which we cannot allow any risk from COVID. And there are many different reasons for this. There are those who are too terrified to think straight. And there are those who want to control you. And that's just for starters. That's just the beginning here. This is the nightmare 
some of us have been warning you about. You've probably thought for the last three or four months at least that with highly effective vaccines already in distribution or a few months ago about to be in distribution, you might get your life back soon, right? Maybe even by the summer of 2021, the masks would come off, schools and restaurants would open, even weddings and concerts would be back in action. Well, think again. The lockdowners and the mask cultists have other plans for you. Now, the media tells us with the pace of these vaccinations and the spread of new strains that COVID could be around, like I said, for a very, very long time, could be an endemic. Right. Like the flu, as in it's going to be within the population. Right. Within the population. That's uh, that's important for people to understand. That's just what we're looking at now. That's victory going from the epidemic, going going from the pandemic everywhere to the endemic disease that exists and continues to exist over a period of time. And at a minimum, this means that arbitrary and idiotic mitigation measures like mask mandates, filling out test and trace forms, random temperature checks, those could all become the new normal forever. And it will probably be far more intrusive and destructive than that. You've seen the attitude, the mentality of these lockdowners. They don't want to give you back freedom. They don't want to give you back liberty. No interest in any of that. And one thing's for sure already, they're going to drag out the pain, the misery, and the, the control as long as they can. Because too many people have too much emotional investment in their belief in science, which is itself a bizarre idea, absurd. It just feels so virtuous for MSNBC watchers, though, to sneer at the evil anti-mask Trump supporters that they imagine are the reason for this disease continuing to spread. Of course, while working class people deliver their packages and their food to them in the comfort of their very nice air conditioned and heated homes. No. The Biden administration, the left, the Fauciites, they're in no rush to let you have your life back. They want to get something out of this. It's a pretty valuable thing to borrow from Blagojevich. It's a valuable thing. You don't just give this away. You don't give back your someone's life to them unless they do something to make you happy, to justify that trade, that transaction. No, quite the opposite. The left has conditioned much of the American public to act like brainless sheep who do whatever the bureaucrats with stethoscopes tell them. That's where we are. The left is leveraging this crisis and creating a turnkey totalitarian society. So they will find endless excuses to extend the covid lockdown misery. Sure, maybe they'll let up in places for the summer months. And you really think that if this mentality continues on, if the zero risk Fauciite approach continues, that they will just give you back your liberty? This disease is not going to be at zero. There'll still be people out there in hysterics demanding you mask. And there'll be people demanding you mask up all summer. Not necessarily in your state, perhaps, but in a lot of places across the country. And you think the Biden administration is going to let you fly without a mask on? You think interstate travel and the federal government is not going to use its powers to restrict your abilities to live your life normally just because they're terrified That somebody somewhere may be going maskless. Oh, my gosh. How horrible. My friends, 
They bleat, listen to the science. And we know this has become a rallying cry for those too frightened to think for themselves or too infatuated with controlling others to understand that life comes with risks. There is no perfect security. And if you try to gain it through the state, you will merely give up all your liberty and run risks to your security of a different nature, as well as the original risks that they promise to protect you from. Here's what the science actually tells anybody who's going to be honest about it. Open the schools. How long have I been saying that? And you know I'm right. Stop wearing masks outside. What the heck is this nonsense? Who came up with this? Everyone at low risk should start living normal lives. Not next fall, not next year, now. And the lockdowns did not work and they weren't necessary. Florida is the experiment that proves this. The debate over that should be over, but no, it's really just starting. They are rewriting the history in front of your very eyes. They're going to act like they won a battle that they actually lost. Just like many totalitarian regimes of the past, they, they, they get annihilated on the actual battlefield. The results, the losses are clear for anybody who was there. And they go home and they tell the population, we had a great victory. We had a great victory. That's the Fauciite approach with lockdowns to COVID-19 setting all new records in the last 60 days for cases in one day, for deaths in one day, for hospitalizations. And yes, it has started to go down. That's because we're going to be in the middle of February soon. And there is a seasonality to this virus. And there are vaccinations getting out there. There are things pulling down this curve, but it's not double masking. okay? and we all know it. And the social media companies, which you have to remember, are not run by brilliant technical uh, computer engineers. Yeah, they work at those places and there is a genius behind the scenes in in the back end and a tremendous power in these sites. But the people that are making policy about all of this, the people that are deciding what you can and can't say, they're English literature majors from Bard and Wellesley and Reed College. That's who actually sits around at places like Facebook and Google and determines what people like me can say about the pandemic. Not only are they not experts on the issue, they're just not very smart. A bunch of brainwashed, petty totalitarians, and they have done everything they can to shut down the free, open and honest debate that should have been at the center of lockdowns all along. But has that been the case? Has that been where we are? No, of course not. Silence ideas that are outside the consensus. Punish people. Punish people for even making jokes about this, as I have found out I'm not allowed to do. No, instead of embracing the truth and the freedom that would come with it, the lockdown left is doubling down. They may relieve some of these measures in the short term, but it's like bringing you a pizza while you're in prison. It's nice for the night, but the next day you go back to the gruel that they've been shoveling in front of you and all the restrictions on your conduct and on your freedom still exist. So it's a temporary reprieve from their totalitarianism. That's what they're offering you. They will not embrace the freedom that we should have right now. They want to maintain the right to tell you to mask up next winter, to shut down some businesses. They want this control going forward because forever COVID 
is the excuse for it. And they're training the population right now to do what the government says and not ask questions. They are training us so that we will just obey. Do you think they're really going to limit this to COVID? Do you think that they're not going to apply this same stop at nothing, scorched earth approach to any number of different urgent political challenges the left thinks are out there? Most notably climate change, where you've already seen just what a bunch of maniacal lunatics they are. No, they are changing the American psyche right now because they are making us feel at our core that we are not a free people. We exist by the leave of the elites. And as long as we think we are safe and warm and fed, it's all the same to us. That's America in 2021 until we decide it's not. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Hi there. I'm Jill Biden here at the White House with our two dogs, Champ and Major. For a lot of us during this pandemic, our pets have been such a source of joy and comfort. And maybe a bark or two on a video conference. The unconditional love from a dog is one of the most beautiful things on earth, and we owe it to them to keep ourselves healthy. So please keep wearing your masks, even when you're out walking your dog. Right, guys? Okay, think about this. Are you in a crowd when you're walking your dog? Let's just start with this. I mean, this is this is the prop, the big brother propaganda from the first lady now. Very political issue. We, we don't need her. We don't need her weighing in on science. She's not a real doctor. She's not even a real scholar, but that's a whole other thing. I don't need her weighing in. I don't need to hear this from the first lady. Who cares? Uh, but but let's let's actually pay attention to this for a second. Where is the large peer reviewed uh, controlled a controlled group based study, an actual scientific study. Forget about the peer reviewed part, by the way, because they just they just rubber stamp each other stuff that they like. Where's the actual data to show that there is outdoor spread that happens in free flowing air, that outdoor spread of covid is a real problem. Remember the Sturgis motorcycle rally and they said, oh, my gosh, that's a super spreader event. It's spreading covid everywhere. No, no, it actually wasn't true. There might have been a couple of cases here or there, but. I mean, there are a couple of cases for people to go to grocery stores, a couple of cases for people that, you know, use the same elevator. I mean, who knows? And yet they still say this stuff. Wear your mask outside. Where is Fauci on this one? Why should we wear masks outdoors? Show me someone. Show me the signs. Not, oh, we pulled a couple of researchers who looked at one place and another place for two weeks And the place where people were in masks outdoors had a 5% decrease in COVID compared to the other place that's totally different that they didn't wear masks outdoors based on some survey we did of like 200 people. And therefore, we have to wear masks outdoors. And if you actually look at what they call the science here, it's sloppy garbage. The only really large study of this that was done was actually done in China. And I know you'd say, well, Buck, how can we trust China? I don't know why they would lie about the outdoor transmission rate of this, right? I mean, they, yeah, they lied in the early days about human-to-human transmission, but they were trying to stop the panic, but the panic had already happened when this came about. They did a, a large study in China, and they found that basically no cases of COVID were... This is in the, the big Chinese study from last March or April of 2020, I believe it was. Basically, no cases of COVID out of thousands studied came from outdoor transmission based on all the test and trace they have. And remember, they're, they're an actual totalitarian society. 
So they have much greater ability to get people to comply with things like this. And so I just have to ask, you know, what exactly as we look at this, what is it going to take for people to understand that this is not this is not rooted in data or truth. This is just part of the panic. This is just part of what we're always being told. And the first lady of the United States at the Super Bowl is saying it for a very specific reason. Everybody is supposed to comply. Everybody is supposed to bend the knee. Why? Wearing a mask when you're walking your dog. I walk a dog every day. Okay, she is white and soft and adorable. And uh, her name is Tallulah. And I walk, she's a little French bulldog and she snorts like a little pig. And she's, yeah, she's also, by the way, I love that the Bidens have two dogs and love their dogs. I actually, there are some things I like about the Bidens. That's probably the very top of the list, okay, that they have dogs and they love their dogs. Uh, but you don't walk your dogs in a crowd. You don't walk your dogs up close to people. So why should I wear a mask when I'm doing that? Well, if the answer is because of some kind of mask solidarity, then why shouldn't I be told to wear a mask indoors alone in my own apartment? Where some places have actually said that, by the way. Why not wear a mask in the shower to really show how dedicated I am? Why not triple mask? Double masking is better. Triple masking clearly better than that. I mean, really, if I want to just save everybody, I should just put a plastic bag over my head and only allow myself to, to, to breathe, you know, once every two minutes and hope I don't pass out. This is how stupid this is how absurd it is all getting. And here we are. First lady, wear your mask alone outside walking the dog. Uh, well, Madame Jill Biden? No. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Do you think it's time for schools to reopen? I think it's time for schools to reopen safely, safely. You have to have fewer people in the classroom. You have to have ventilation systems that have been reworked. Our CDC commissioner is going to be coming out with science-based judgment within, I think, as early as Wednesday as the layout, what the minimum requirements are. Safely. We've got to do it safely. Look, please go to BuckSaxon.com. I have an editorial up today on forever the fight against forever COVID. You know that I've seen all this stuff coming. You know that I've had, and I don't mean, I'm not trying to brag about it or something, and I'm not the only one, but I know what they're going to try to do here. I know what they've been doing, and the record speaks for itself in that regard. So please go to BuckSexon.com, read my editorial there on the fight against forever COVID, and, and share it to your Facebook page. That's a really helpful thing to do. Just, just press the share button to your Facebook page, I, I want it is really important to me that we win this fight. I, I want this to go the way it needs to go. And that means people have to understand what's really happening here. They have to understand what we're truly up against. And things like Joe Biden saying, we're going to reopen schools safely. We got to reopen the schools safely. This is this is all nonsense. Schools have always been safe. The, the, the data doesn't say they would be safe if. What the data tells us is that schools are safe, have been safe, will be safe. That children are, thank God, at effectively zero risk and very, very unlikely to spread this to anyone. And then you'd say, well, what about the teachers? I know we always hear this. What about the teachers? Uh, well, there are other people who are working in critical positions doing so for less glory and even money than teachers are. You know, thank you, 
postal service workers, grocery store clerks, truckers, you know, thank you to the people that are keeping the country going during the pandemic. And beyond that, most teachers are under the age of 65. In fact, most teachers, a vast majority of them are in their 30s and 40s. And so we're at entirely acceptable risk from COVID-19 unless they have some comorbidity or some additional health issue. And if that's the case, they should make arrangements for that teacher to do Zoom instruction. But for a teacher who's 25, who just doesn't want to go back into the classroom or a teacher who's 35, who just doesn't feel like actually having to show up in person. The response for the government authorities, because these are public sector employees, they work for the government in the public school system, should be show up or find another job. That's it. That's not some that's not some horrible prison sentence. That's, you know, OK, you don't it doesn't matter to you enough to actually teach these kids, you know, go go do something else. Learn to code. Have fun. You know, go set up a one of these you know side hustles online where you're selling and reselling Amazon products or something. And if you look at Instagram or TikTok these days, people are making millions doing that. I mean, I, I don't believe any of that stuff, but I'm just saying there's other other ways, other ways um, that we have to view this. But the Democrats rely on, you know this, the Democrats rely on the teachers unions for a lot. They rely on the teachers unions for a lot. And that means that they're not going to tell them, they're not going to speak out against them in any meaningful way. And that allows the continued suffering of children. Now, I, I understand that in Chicago, it looks like they've reached a tentative deal. You know that in Chicago, they had already reached a deal and they had done all the things. They're not even really doing school the way that they should. Now, can I be clear about this? Uh, they're not even telling people, go back to school. Kids should not be wearing masks. Okay, kids shouldn't be masked up all day. This is absurd. Kids don't need to be socially distanced in school. They are not at risk from the disease. This is known. This is established. It has been shown in country after country all over the world. So why are we masking up kids? Oh, you know, now you start to see, you know, to, to make us into the bleeding sheep who do what we're told. You want to start young. You know, you, you, you want to get to us before, before we actually have uh, thought processes of our own about things like this. You know, that's, that's the way that it goes. You want, you want to tell us when we're eight years old, mask up, be quiet. Here's some social justice reading for you. Okay. Uh, the Chicago public schools was finally, I think, too much. Too much. Um, and now everyone's finally understanding what's been going on here, and, and that is there's been a complete lack of willingness. There, there's been an insistence from people on the left that, they, uh, that we not really conduct ourselves like reasonable adults that can, who can balance out the needs of society and the need to protect people, especially at-risk people from this disease, it's just been whatever the establishment demands we've been willing to go along with. Whatever the the Fauciites have decided on any given day, that then becomes the excuse for shutting down dissent and telling everybody that this is the way that it, it has to be. 
this is the way it has to be. And and it's a shame. It's a shame. They're just figuring out now all, all the suffering that has gone on out there. Here's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, understanding this now. Play two, uh, play four. People are on the verge of uh, losing the roofs over their heads. Um, the package provides rental assistance. Um, we have 24 million adults and 12 million children that are, are going hungry every day, and we need to provide them with food. Um, we have people suffering, particularly low-wage workers and um, minorities, and through absolutely no fault of their own, we have to get them to the other side and make sure this doesn't take a permanent toll um, on their lives. So we need a package that's big enough to address this full range of needs. And I believe that the American Rescue Plan is up to the job. Can I, can I be very I want to be very clear here. I want to be very clear. here. It's like the Democrats are just waking up right now and figuring out that it is predominantly low income and minority kids who are suffering from these uh, school shutdowns. It is predominantly or actually almost entirely the working class, generally speaking, who are having a hard time putting food on the table, keeping up with their with their bills um, maintaining payments for their rent or their mortgage, and that the feckless and unaccountable decisions of Gavin Newsom and Governor Cuomo and Governor Pritzker and Gretchen Whitmer up in Michigan and Governor Murphy in New Jersey, you know, go down the list. Those decisions have hurt people. They've acted the whole time like there was no choice here. We had to do all these things. Really? We, we had to shut down businesses on an arbitrary fashion? Because in New York, we're reopening restaurants, for example, in less than two weeks with higher caseload than when we shut it down. So what is it? The pain, the economic pain got to be too much politically. It used to be that they would all pretend that economic pain didn't matter. Didn't matter. It's about saving lives. If you even talked about keeping society going, you were a reckless monster who wanted grandma to die. And yet here we are. Now we can finally have the discussion. Now we can finally look at this and say, hmm, there was a balance that needs to be struck. There was honesty that we needed to have in all of this. Yeah. Just in just in time, of course, for there to be an administration that's going to love the abuse of the power that it's already gathered along all of this. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. He may read it on the show. Burn it. Down, they chant as they march through our nation's capital. A whole bunch of Biden voters, everybody. Anybody care? Does this matter to anybody? Do we, do we pay any attention to this? Why is it insurrection and domestic terrorism when once in the very, very, very rare occasion, there are a bunch of people who are loosely associated with the right in some way who make a bad make bad decisions and break the law and uh, and and riot but there are there are riots and there's law breaking on the left in the name of politics all the time. And the well, I mean, I, I'm asking these questions rhetorically. We know the answers. They like what they like. 
They justify what they justify. And we're supposed to forget that even though we have a Biden administration, there are still people running around acting like we are in the grips of some kind of totalitarian authoritarian madness from the right. That there's going to be this is what's so scary. They've created this this entirely false construct while they are in power. Think about what the Democrats control. They control the executive branch. They have a majority in the House. They have control in, in the Senate. They have social media, news media, Hollywood, academia, most of the legal profession, most of the of the of the judges across the country. I mean, you go down the list. Think of all the institutions that the left controls and the way they're leveraging those institutions as part of a purge of the right, a purge of ideas that they do not like. Think of all that that's happening. And yet, sure enough. Sure enough, they think that the problem is right wing authoritarianism. We are, I mean, the right is on defense across the country, everywhere. We know this. And we should be honest about it. The right is on defense, no question about it. And yet we find ourselves in a situation where uh, we're being told the problem is that there could be a conservative insurrection at any moment. There could be a conservative overthrow of the government. We're, we're trying to just, like, not get kicked off the Internet. We're trying to not have... Our banks say they're not going to allow us to have banking services anymore or, you know, that, that's where we are. And yet there's this whole conversation about Trumpism and the Trumpers and the counterinsurgency laws applied to them, and everything else. This is straight up madness. It's absurd. It's wrong. And it is uh, deeply upsetting on, on top of all of this. Uh. You see the way that they're discussing this and you see the way that they talk about this and they're just delusional. They are just delusional. Here's uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries on the on the second impeachment of Donald Trump. Um, I, I want to dig into this a bit because, as you know, this is it's impeachment 2.0 week. Play it. But, John, this is an open and shut case. Uh, we all have heard the president's inflammatory rhetoric throughout the duration of the final few months of his presidency. Uh, we all know that the president lied about the election, said that it was stolen from him, held stop the steal rallies, perpetrated the big lie that resulted in the mob coming to Washington, which he summoned. He then inflamed and incited the mob and then directed them to march on the Capitol. And we saw what happened with deadly consequences, a violent attack on the citadel of our democracy. He told them to march and have their voices peacefully heard. If telling someone to do something peacefully is the same as telling them to do it violently, then words have no meaning. Then language does not matter. And I think... We all understand. I think we all understand that that cannot be the way that we go forward. Um, I shouldn't say we all, but you and I and the whole country doesn't. So certainly there's half the country that wants the president to be impeached. But that, that, does anyone think that number is particularly different from what it would always be? I mean, how, here's, here's a fun fact. 
What percentage of the nation voted for Joe Biden and what percentage of the nation thinks that that Trump should be convicted by this Senate trial? He's already been impeached. I know, you know, our, our language for all this stuff is somewhat, somewhat imprecise, somewhat full of uh, shortcomings. But what's being said right now is is just it's just making everything for the country worse. And instead of Democrats, you'll notice they're in power now. They haven't shown us some surge of good governance. They don't have great ideas. The stuff they're doing is dumb, destructive, unhelpful, ideologically driven, hysterical. This is not this is not a return to some Biden era normalcy where everything's going to be OK. And good old Grandpa Joe is going to make everything just fine. No, the radical left is basically calling the shots inside the Democrat Party. They're pushing the agenda. And part of that agenda is to is to say that what happened on Capitol Hill on January 6th was the worst thing that's ever happened to the country. And that's just not true. They can keep saying it. It's just not true. I on Presley. Uh, continuing with this this storyline that somehow what somehow what happened on January 6th was about white supremacy. I mean, I've been telling you about this uh, white supremacy. Who said this was a white supremacist? Rally? There was no white supremacist rhetoric around it. There was it was about an election. It was about a candidate that had 75 million people vote for him, including more black and Latino voters the second time than the first time. And it's a white supremacist assault. Well, that that that. Sounds scary. That's what they say. Play 18. But let me just say this for those that continue to feign great surprise about what happened on January 6th. As a black woman to be barricaded in my office using office furniture and water bottles on the ground in the dark, that terror, those moments of terror is familiar in a deep and ancestral way for me. And I want us to do everything to ensure that a breach like this never occurs at the Capitol. But I want us to address the evil and scourge that is white supremacy in this nation. This is not only about securing the Capitol to ensure that members and our staffs and custodial staff and food service workers are safe in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. It is that we are safe in America. And one of the images that I'm haunted by is the black custodial staff cleaning up the mess left by that violent white supremacist mob, that is a metaphor for America. We have been cleaning up after violent white supremacist mobs for generations, and it must end. I'm just wondering who who was cleaning up after the hundreds of riots, the thousands of businesses looted, destroyed, attacked, lit on fire. Who was cleaning that up? Do we get to know? Fair question to ask. Just wondering. Oh, oh, right. That was about justice, right? Destroying a lot of businesses, including a lot of minority owned businesses, because it was Biden voters doing it. That was somehow about justice. And it certainly wasn't terrorism. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Harsanyi time. Our friend David Harsanyi with us now. He is a senior writer at National Review. David, happy post-Super Bowl Monday. Thank you. You as well. Who, who did you root for? I didn't really root. I, I, I'm not even, honestly, I, I feel like I get socially pushed because I just want to hang out with my, my family members who do like football, so I end up watching, even though I, I really could care less, quite honestly. And this time around, I think it's cool that Tom Brady showed everybody that he's probably the greatest football player of all time. I think it's fascinating that so many people 
hate him so much because they think that he's some big Trump supporter when I think he's just kind of vaguely friendly with Trump. I, mean, I don't think it's that big a deal. But uh, as, not that that should matter either way. But, uh, you know, it was a boring game, though, David. And that's I'm, I like to see I like to see things a little bit more uh, a little more of a struggle, a little bit more of a back and forth. Yeah. Tell yeah. me this. What are you seeing right now with impeachment week upon us? Because I feel like this is to borrow from a, from a Yogi Berra deja vu all over again. And yes, I know that's a joke. People always write me when I say that. that that's the point. It's supposed to be a joke. Uh, but it does feel like we went through this before. We're going to have a lot of worthless speeches from people um, who are just lawyers really auditioning for MSNBC contributorships, talking about the beauty of our democracy and the evil of Donald Trump, who's not even president anymore. I don't think they're going to have the votes. And so what's the point, David? Well, I think the point is to stretch out the Trump presidency. I think that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just not going to do it for them. So having Trump there as the boogeyman post-election is something that they think will be helpful for them politically. And I, uh, just as a matter of principle, I'm never against impeachment. So I think most presidents should probably be impeached. So I'm, I'm, I'm constitutionally, I, I accept the idea that, that, that presidents can be impeached post or removed post-presidency. Or I guess, you know, found guilty. But I think it's uh, I think it's going to backfire on them. I just don't believe most Americans understand why they're doing it. I think that it's going to deflect attention away from uh, any kind of uh, agenda that they have moving forward that might be popular or maybe maybe not. So I just don't really get why they're doing it other than what you say. I think it's for a lot of uh, showboating, a lot of preening about morality. And I think people are going not going to understand why it's happening. I mean, just fundamentally to me, I'm seeing that there's there's a lot of people now who are are just in in public discourse, commentators and others who are just lying about this insofar as they say Trump ordered them. Trump ordered them to to go do an insurrection on Capitol Hill. That's just not true. I mean, I've been very critical of the exaggerated, the exaggerated claims about provable fraud from the election and I think that that I think that that was was irresponsible and it was done by a lot of people and including the president himself. Um, but he didn't tell them to actually go do the thing. And people are saying, oh, yeah, he told them to go do this thing. Right. Such as that, even. I mean, now it's like Ted Cruz was sent to kill me. And, you know, Ted Cruz sent a mob to kill me. And all the now all Republicans it keeps growing and growing, whereas I read through the, the things that Trump said. Listen, I don't like it. I think he incited them in a way. But I mean, if those words are going to be impeachable words, we're going to have a big problem. Um, I think it's irresponsible behavior. If you want to impeach him, fine. But to pretend that he specifically incited or instructed that crowd to do what they did, that crowd, that, you know, those rioters, um, that's that's going to be set precedence. I don't think anyone's going to be very happy with. Of course, they never have to live. Democrats never have to live by their own precedence. But still, I think that it's going to be a weird case to make. And, you know, I was looking at the polling when they say, you know, 52 percent of people think it should be impeached and removed. Well, that's the same percentage that was that was before. I mean, you could have polled the second day and you probably have that kind of percentage in polling for impeaching him. I think it's any popular now than it was then in the long run, for sure. I'm concerned about what what I think is a, is a near certainty at this point. And, and you you raise this essentially with your point about Marjorie Taylor Greene, MTG, where the, the, the left, it's not like in a post-Trump era of politics, there's going to be any sense of 
let's let's all come together and be friends. I mean, I, I don't know if you saw there was an article in the Los Angeles Times where a woman says that her next door neighbor, Trump supporters, did a really fantastic job just to be kind, plowing her whole driveway for her. So she had no problem getting out. And then the, the whole article is these are basically like the supporters of Hitler. And so what do I do? I can't accept this from them because Trump is so evil. But they just did this random act of kindness for me for no reason. And I feel like maybe they're nice people, but I can't think they're nice people because they're Trump supporters. I think that's a widespread mentality. I actually think it's a mental illness. And I think that millions of Democrats have it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how widespread it is among real people. Maybe it is. I don't know. But uh, folks who the woman who wrote, I think it was a woman who wrote that piece, you know, for her politics is her religion. So she so she is kind of demeaning people, dehumanizing her neighbors because they don't agree with her on her politics, because that's the only, you know, politics has replaced religion. And many people have said that or made that argument. And I think it's true. And you need something to fill that void. And people are turning towards politics. And when they do that, they create uh, these, you know, black and white scenarios and their enemies are Trump supporters and Trump himself. And they really believe he's Hitler. I mean, we've seen I've seen so many columns where like they ask, is it wrong to compare Trump to Hitler? No, this is like 1934, you know, and it just I think it's like a coming together of historical illiteracy of believing that of, of egomania in the sense that you believe that this is the most important time ever. And that is the most evil man who's ever lived, et cetera. And then you have people who don't want their neighbors shoveling their, you know, their their sidewalks. So it's a dangerous I think it's a dangerous way to view the world. And I think we. I don't know. I, more, I used to think that this was all overdone, but more and more, I think we're, we're in some serious trouble. Not that I think we should unite. That's not the point of America. America is you're supposed to be able to believe what you want and still live together, not unite in your ideology or politics. That's the point of the United States. I think many people have lost that. And we're in I think we're in some trouble. Yeah, well, I think you, you hit a very important point here. And we're speaking to David Harsani. He's a senior writer at National Review. And David, we talk about we talk about unity. And there have been a lot of jokes made about this, and I think that they're they're both amusing and very true that unity in the current context means apologize for everything you used to believe, agree with everything I believe, and maybe we'll stop like ruining you, getting you fired from your job and kicking you off the Internet. Uh, the, the, the real unity that I thought we were going for in America was we're ultimately Americans. We you know respect the rule of law. We have a we have some shared bonds and commonality from just being Americans and you get to do your thing and I get to do my thing. And, you know, if you shovel out my driveway and it's a nice thing, I say thank you, irrespective of your politics. That's what unity I, I thought was what we meant in America. Right. And that's what should mean. Unity does not. I mean, having unit, you have unity in authoritarian places. And let's be honest, I think progressives are authoritarian. They believe the state should be controlling what we do. And now they obviously believe that the state should be telling us what to think and how to act. And um and that there is no place in society for people who disagree. And they offer, as many authoritarians do, collective guilt. I mean, or they create collective guilt. So if uh, I am just like the person, essentially, I mean, I get this all the time on social media and in emails. I essentially am part of that mob that that rioted at the Capitol now. Whereas I don't agree. I mean, I am like a big skeptic. I don't believe in, you know, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe in violence. I have nothing to do with those people. I think they're crazy. But yet I will be part of that. And that's how they work. And that's how authoritarianism works. And now you have entire magazines like The Atlantic, entire 
um, editorial pages like the New York Times, making cases against the Constitution, pretending that Republicans are have some kind of minority rule and are controlling the country. They don't believe in the Constitution and they don't believe in act the kind of unity that the founders believed in. I mean, that's the sad case. I'm not saying all Republicans are perfect and not, none of them want to control people and there are no authoritarians on the right. Just saying it's widespread and mainstreamed on the left. Right now it is mainstreamed by a president who uses uh, executive orders like crazy. He's far more uh, abusive of the executive power than Trump ever was. I mean, there's no comparison already and we're only a few weeks in and yet they ignore that. The guy's talking about a domestic uh, law to hunt down, uh, you know, counterterrorists, meaning MAGA supporters. Uh, yeah. No counterterrorism. Yeah. The armed, the armed forces are being investigated for people's thought crimes. I mean, people who are in the armed forces, these things, if he, if, if Trump had done these things in the reverse, there would be a huge hat crime. They'd be right. But no one says anything on that side right now. It's amazing. The, the double standards that are under underway right now, you know, David, there, there was a, uh, it was actually in a Glenn Greenwald piece over the weekend, uh, and I'll just sort of tell you the, the details, but I think you understand the, the basic premise because you've seen it, too, where there are there are people now who think that their job as reporters is and, and he names Green, uh, Greenwald names who's a leftist. And I think a leftist who he's good on free speech and pretty much nothing else. He likes dogs, too. We both like dogs. I think that's about it. But, you know, he is he is a free speech guy. He actually does believe that. I mean, he's kind of old school, you know, 30 years ago, maybe ACLU in that approach. Um, and not that the ACLU didn't have problems then, too. But you know what I mean? But he writes about about uh, Taylor Lawrence, at the New York Times and um, Oliver Darcy at CNN. And there's a whole bunch of them who who are actively trying to find places online where journalists are having conversations so that they can then find when they say something they're not supposed to, like they're having a private conversation. This is a come up in this clubhouse app, this new app. And and then they try to ruin them. I mean, they're basically infiltrating uh, conversations with other journalists or other people who are public intellectuals or public figures in some capacity, in some cases doing it surreptitiously or trying to get access to those chat logs. I mean, it's like they're snitching on people for their text messages effectively. The most recent one was Taylor Lawrence of the New York Times, who's a tech reporter who is awful, uh, trying to say that Mark Andreessen, who's a very famous uh, you know, Silicon Valley tech guy, used the R word and therefore should be canceled and did, accused him of doing this. And she said this publicly. And it turns out he actually didn't use it. Somebody else on the on the uh, in the chat or on the call. Uh, it was a clubhouse. It was audio. Somebody else said it. And in reference to Reddit people who are using it as a rallying cry during the whole GameStop thing. But she tried to ruin this guy. And this is the game now. I mean, they have people who their full time job is to find you or me, you know, in a, in a text chat using a naughty word so we can get fired. And this is journalism now. Uh, it's not journalism at all. Nothing enrages me more than what's going on with that in that aspect. You know, uh, those people who stay, listen, I think some of them, like Oliver Darcy, I mean, he would do whatever he needed to do to have his job to get his check. He's a complete sycophant. But there are other people who are just have authoritarian instincts. I, w I need to get a, a thesaurus to find better words for authoritarian because but that is what these people are. Um, for a journalist to try to track down people to shut down voices is just... It's never happened. I mean, I was reading a column from 1979 recently uh, in a book. Uh, it was a Washington, and they were talking about the Washington Post editorial board defending the Skokie uh, 
Nazis and saying that we have to make sure everyone is the best way to fight evil speech is with more speech and all that stuff. Today, it's just the opposite. And uh, I mean, I I don't even know what to say about that. I know it starts in journalism schools. I don't know if you know Jay Rosen. He's one of these. I think he's at the NYU journalism school. He's on there constantly calling for people to try to ban speech, shut down voices all the time. I mean, this is insane. And these are the, these are the schools that um, you know that these are the schools that produce these sorts of people. It's just insane, and it's terribly, terribly corrosive to freedom and free speech because you're normalizing and mainstreaming again ideas about free speech that will make the First Amendment useless. Because if you don't believe in the underlying ideas of freedom as a neutral principle, you don't believe in the Constitution. And I totally don't think most of these people believe the Constitution. Uh, is you know should exist. I think they think it's antiquated. I think they um, want to get rid of it. So I think that's the main fight, or should be the main fight moving forward for the right to protect that constitution. I'm seeing a lot of what what I would consider to be kind of Politburo style tortured logic that always circles back to whatever whatever is best for us is what's best for all, and therefore whatever we think is best for in this situation is is what is best right i mean it's it's a, it's tautological right it's this is the way because i say it it must be so and you, with journalism now i've i've seen this and i wish i could cite the person but it's one of these journalism professor types saying that journalists have to struggle with the fact that today the first amendment itself is a threat to journalism this is the new line i don't know if you've seen that it's like saving the free market destroying the free market to save the free market under bush right um Here's the thing, you know, they, they, they say, listen, for the common good, we can't have people saying crazy things that incite violence. You know, words now are violence. I just don't think that that's true at all. There is something called incitement and there's a legal concept. Words are not incitement. You know, bad ideas are not incitement. Not even evil de- ideas are. And just because in, in, incidentally you suppress them on Twitter or something doesn't mean they don't exist. Doesn't mean those thoughts aren't there. But more than that, they keep telling me, like, you know, for the common good, we need to do that. Politics is an argument over what the common good is. If you're just skipping that part, then you're not debating politics anymore. You're just telling us what to do. And that's what they want to do because they think that because they won a presidential election, they now get to control everything Americans do and think. I don't even care. You know, people like, why are you protecting this Nazi or why are you protecting? Yeah. I mean, if it comes to free speech, I'm for protecting that speech. You're not going to browbeat me that way. And one day, you know, one day maybe they'll twist something I say in, into, you know, something racist or whatever. And they call you that anyway. And my uh, career will be over and that that will be it. But, you know, I'm still I mean, I'm not trying to pretend I'm brave or anything. Cause yeah, at least you and me are going to go out on principle here, David. I say the same thing. I've told my family members that I'm like, I've had a normal job before. I could have a normal job again if I have to not be in media. That's fine. So, I mean, people got to be. I can't do it. Yeah. I have no other skills, Buck. So this is it for me. <laughs> well, we'll figure it out. We'll we'll, we'll open up a nice, you know, a nice sandwich shop somewhere. But anyway, David Arsani, everybody, follow him at National Review, nationalreview.com. Thanks so much, David. Anytime. Thank you. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. Down 20, 5.03 to go. Someone has run on the field. Some guy with a brawl. And now he's not being chased. He's running down the middle of the 40. Arms in the air and a victory salute. 
He's pulling down his pants. Put up your pants, my man. Pull up those pants. He's being chased to the 30. He breaks the tackle from a security guard. The 20, down the middle, the 10, the 5. He slides at the 1, and they converge on him at the goal line. Pull up your pants. Take off the bra and be a man. And the players with hands on hips at the other end of the field are looking at him and shaking their head and saying, why, oh, why is this taking place in a Super Bowl? Producer Mark, I missed this. I was, I must have been making the artichoke dip or whatever uh, at this point. I, I didn't. I said, what happened? Well, on TV they never show the streakers on the field, but that was the radio call. Kevin Harlan, courtesy of Westwood One, who's just the most descriptive play-by-play announcer in the business, and always hilarious when something like that happens, and he's there. <laughs> I somehow, I somehow missed this. I, I, I did see some chatter on Twitter. Was there sort of a, a, a pink man thong situation going on no, as well? It, was, it looked like he was wearing a pink sports bra. So you saw it for like five seconds on TV. They were lining up for a second down play, and you see a guy run across the screen, but then they cut away. But there's uh, videos on the internet from fans in the stands. He didn't like stiff arm anybody or anything, right? Like he, he he spun away from a security guard. He pulled a spin move. Yeah, I, I somehow I missed it. But you, you said they find don't the video usually... on Twitter. It's on. It's out there. Ah, uh, okay. So they don't show it on the live broadcast. Yeah, they because cut they don't want to encourage others. Encourage it, right? Wow, a spin a spin move in a in a man's ear. Who, who knew? I missed one of the more. Uh, Memorable moments of the Super Bowl. Certainly more memorable than the Chiefs' offense. That much is for sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. There's a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center of the lower 48. It never closes. All are more than welcome to come meet here in the middle it's no secret the middle has been a hard place to get to lately between red and blue between servant and citizen between our freedom and our fear now fear has never been the best of who we are and as for freedom it's not the property of just the fortunate few it belongs to us all Whoever you are, wherever you're from, it's what connects us, and we need that connection. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. I guess we don't need hearing from Bruce Springsteen about how this is a time for national unity. Now, now I'm going to try to put aside for a moment my well-established, my well-known feelings about how Bruce, Brinks, uh, Bruce Springsteen is the most overrated musician of the last hundred years in America. I'm going to put that aside for a second and how he only has one song that anybody can even remember. They can remember one phrase from it and then the rest of it is all just a lot of you know, guitar stuff that sounds like a lot of other people's guitar stuff. Hey, just put that aside. I'm not a music critic, I understand, and some of you right now are booing me, and that's fine. You can boo me. There are a lot, of, a lot of music groups that I don't like, and there are groups that I do like that I would admit I probably shouldn't, but, you know, it strikes you in a certain way, you know, to each his own. But if we're going to have somebody show up in Kansas for a Jeep commercial 
And hat tip to uh, my friend Jesse Kelly for saying the only thing that really unites people about Jeep is that we've all been down. Uh, we've all been uh, near one when it's broken down or in one when it's broken down if you drive them. But uh, if you're going to pick somebody who's supposed to be uniting the country, bringing the country together and all that stuff. Don't you think we could do better if we're sending someone to Kansas wearing a jean jacket and cowboy boots and the whole thing? Then a guy from Jersey Shore, no offense, Jersey Shore, it's very nice stuff there too, I know. But a guy from the Jersey Shore who's an outspoken lib who hates Trump and disparages Trump supporters and Republicans all the time. Could we just do a little better than that? Could we get someone else in this role? And I didn't even see, Producer Mark, what was the Dolly Parton commercial? I missed that one. Uh, People were giving Dolly Parton a hard time. What did she do? Uh, I'm not sure I didn't see it. Oh, okay. I mean, it's fine. But, you know, there's some Dolly Parton commercial, and and I was seeing, you know, because I, I don't watch every second of this thing. I get up, I walk around, you know, I I go make some more food, usually for myself, and I then scarf it very quickly. Um, Dolly Parton's 2021 Super Bowl commercial is playing a rich man's game, it says here. As much as we all love Dolly Parton, it's... It's disappointing to see her literally seizing the praises of working, working, working. What? Uh, it's kind of amazing. Dolly Parton is a very, very widely beloved music figure and, and far more broad-based support, in my, in my estimation at least, than Bruce Springsteen. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I just I think probably Bruce Springsteen's politics annoys me to the point where I can't be objective. I'm going I'm to say this. I can't be objective about his music. Because I know his politics and I know that this is a guy who's all about the working man. And, you know, Springsteen is worth hundreds of millions of dollars at this point. Easily. Hundreds of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Does he give a lot of money to charity? Does he do a lot to help the working man or does he just sing ballads? You know, here I am for the working man and the whole thing. You know, I just want to know. Is it, is it all like a costume play situation for him? You know, he, he wears the trappings of the working man, but the guy's been a musician for the last 50 years. You know, he, he's, he's not actually... I know he sings songs about down at the steel mill or at the docks or whatever, but what, what, is, what does he actually know of these things? You know, uh, that's, what I would, that's what I would say. That's what I would point out. Uh, you know, it, I, it is what it is. I figured out the hullabaloo over Dolly Parton, by the way. Oh, thank you. What is it? Her original song, uh, 9 to 5, obviously a classic about the working man. This was a uh, Squarespace commercial saying to do your side hustle with the lyrics becoming 5 to 9. Saying if you want to you know, get more money in all this, get your website and do a side hustle and work even more. So people are mad at Dolly Parton for that. Side hustle is an excellent idea. I, I do all kinds of side hustles. I'm an investor. I'm a real, I'm a real estate investor, stock market investor. Uh, I do side projects. I do a, 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 a once weekly, you know, podcast in addition to doing radio. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if those are technically just having a lot of jobs or having side hustles, but, you know, multiple income streams. Producer Mark, you're a multiple income stream guy. You know, I'm a multiple income stream guy. This is this is the way to achieve greater autonomy and control over your life, because Having multiple bosses, because so, everyone's got a boss, right, Producer Mark? We've all got bosses, of course. one or another, doesn't matter. Even, you know, even me, my, I always say my boss, well, t- we even have bosses at, at our company where Mark and I work at iHeartMedia, of course, but really our boss is the audience, but that's still a boss. Like, I got to show up, 
and I got to put in a good performance. I got to make people want to listen and honestly give me some of their time and choose this show over other shows, which you should do because the show is better. But, you know, give this show a chance. Right. That's and so I, so we work. Mark and I work every day for the audience. Um, but one thing I'll say about having a more traditional boss, having and I've been in different structures, uh, you know, work structures in the past, federal government, local government, private sector, independent contractor. And I've done all kinds of things is that if you have multiple people who you answer to, you don't fully answer to anyone, which is a more comfortable and a for me, at least a more comfortable and more freeing experience. What do you think, Producer Mark? I agree. Uh, and it gives you uh, more stuff to do with your day. There's only eight hours of work, so it gives you something to do. Yeah, and let's be clear. I mean, we've we've had this whole evolution of human labor from uh, from you know, largely agrarian societies where there was some skilled labor and, you know, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution comes along and all of a sudden instead of just cobblers and 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 people who are making you know, metal metal workers and making farm equipment and things like that. Uh, you move, you know, and and haberdashers and things. You move along to the Industrial Revolution where you have people mass producing, and then we move to assembly line work, and then from assembly line work we move to what I would consider the corporate nine to five existence. You know, cubicle farmers, if you will. But now, because of the virtual, I guess, virtualization of the world around us and the world that we live in. You are increasingly unshackled from place if you choose to be. But the trade-off is time, you know, because you are ultimately every job. There are pressures on that job from what other people are also willing to do for that job. And this is the, there's the competitive nature of the capitalist system that we're in. And so while now you perhaps don't have to commute the same way, you do have to take into account that you might have to work either longer hours or Add another, you know, job onto your uh, your day to day schedule, and and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's obviously a balance that needs to be had here. You don't want to be working 15 hours a day. That's crazy. But if you can make some extra money, you know, two to three hours at a time here or there, and you don't have to leave your home. I mean, virtual work, for example, that people can do, and I know not everyone can do it. And you know, there's still you still need people to make food. You still need people to to build stuff and to fix stuff, right? You can't be a virtual electrician. I get it. But for a lot of people that are that are working in a, in a more virtual, well, then let's be honest, even with even with electricians, even with plumbers, uh, because of the nature of the way they can advertise their businesses now and the, the way that people can find them more easily, you know, they don't have to put stuff in the yellow pages. They don't have to worry about putting out signage you know, by the highway the same way, it's it's all done virtually. So they even benefit from this. You know, when I type in locksmith near me and my uncle is a locksmith, by the way. So I have some familiarity with the locksmith life, if you will. One of my uncles is. Uh, but if I type in locksmith near me, I find him right away. I call the guy. I've actually never randomly. I've never. Have you ever had a female locksmith producer, Mark? I've never had one. I haven't had the need for one. Yeah, I've, well, I've been I've had to have uh, locks changed on apartments. I've lived. I've moved so many when you're like me and you're very transient in your uh, homes that you've lived in. I've had to bounce around to so many places. I've lived in almost a dozen different places as an adult. You get you because the locksmith's got to come and change the locks for the last tenant or this. You know, it's always something. But yeah, I've never had a female locksmith. I've never had a female plumber either. Now that I think about it. 
anyway, just a thought. It's never really occurred to me until now. Um, but uh, and we all, you know, look, everybody needs a plumber at some point. We don't have to discuss why or you know, but just everybody needs a plumber at some point. You know, this something gets stopped up in the sink, shall we say? That could happen, um, and that is not something I know. But anyway, the point here being, I think that the Dolly Parton outrage about getting your side hustle going on is absurd, and yet the belief that like why why not i understand there's corporate interests that are pushing this and they didn't ask dolly parton and who knows what the budgets are for these things you know whether whether there was more money for the dolly parton commercial or, or the springsteen commercial but this whole i just th- i just think that springsteen the whole thing is kind of phony i really I, I don't think there's anything phony about dolly parton she's a performer she did you know she's got an incredible voice she's done all her own stuff i mean i just feel like she built the whole thing and I know people love Bruce Springsteen live performance, and I've never been to one. So I will say that part of it I cannot speak to. And even producer Mark and I have talked about before, love him or hate him, Coldplay is an amazing live band to see. Correct. Just, it's just the truth. It's just reality. Like, you go see Coldplay, you're like, wow, these guys, they're really just rocking out with their instruments. There's an energy on stage. They're really into it. There's a there's a performance aspect you've got to respect. Um. So put that aside, because that may be true. Bruce, I will say one of my brothers, who's not a Springsteen fan, went to a Springsteen concert and said that it actually is the, the concert itself is amazing. So I, I give credit where it's due. But just for me, the whole, you know, oh, I'm the working man thing. And it's like, guys, he's a super famous millionaire, ultra millionaire rock star who's got the politics of, you know, a, a, a Hollywood 25 year old actress. OK, that's that's who Bruce Springsteen is. You know, he's basically, yeah, man, like climate change and socialism and like, let's spread the wealth. And then that's that's Bruce Springsteen. So he's going to bring the country together. I, I don't I don't think so. I don't think that's going to work. So just just pointing it out. Just just keeping it real. That's what I do. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. The New York Post has a headline, Biden soft on crime posture will wreak havoc on uh, on cities. Uh, why do you think that this president is so different than President Trump? And why would he tolerate this? It's where the, it's, the judge, it's where the Democrat Party is today. I mean, look, they're the party of, of open borders. We've seen that in President uh, Biden's executive orders. They're, they're not even going to deport illegal immigrants who have criminal back, criminal records. So they're the party of open borders, defund the police. They're the party that bailed out the rioters and looters part of this Antifa and never forget the Democrat chair of the Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, said Antifa is a myth. So here's the chairman of the committee that's supposed to be about justice, about enforcing the law, about protecting the Constitution, protecting your rights, who thinks Antifa is a myth after everything they did to so many of our major cities this summer. So it's just who the Democrat Party is today and why it's so important that we stand up against their radical policies. This is the border crisis that Joe Biden called for. You know, we, we speak about uh, Trump and this impeachment farce, which, you know, it'll be over soon, folks. They're not, they're not going to convict him. The whole thing is stupid, but, you know, Democrats are insane. But this, uh, this border crisis that's unfolding right now is very clearly um, what Biden's policies encouraged and brought about. And, and just the position of the Democrat Party on immigration overall is why we are in this position right now. We're in this position because Democrats do not believe that people who come to the country illegally have really broken the law. In effect, 
They do not believe in the illegality of illegal immigration. And that's something that I think everybody needs to understand right now. There's nothing about what's happening right now with the caravans that are on their way, thousands and thousands of people, the changes to asylum policy, the changes to enforcement to effectively not enforce the law about immigration. Nothing about this is surprising. And what's happening is a direct consequence of these decisions by Biden, by the Democrats and the left overall. So we're, we're getting what they want. Don't let them try to convince you otherwise. They're, they're going to try to play all kinds of games here and say, oh, you know, we're not we, we didn't want this to happen. No, they absolutely did. They knew this was going to happen. So we'll, we'll continue to follow this immigration story this week. One, one more thing that I I wanted to get to. Um, they're they're so petty. They're not going to give Biden intel briefings. I'm sorry, Biden will not give Trump intel briefings. Play 14. If you were still a senator, would you vote to convict him? Look, I ran like hell to defeat him because I thought he was unfit to be president. I've watched what everybody else watched, what happened when that that crew invaded the United States Congress. But um, I'm not in the Senate now. I'll let the Senate make that decision. Well, let me ask you then something that you do have oversight of as president. Should former President Trump still receive intelligence briefings? I think not. Why not? Because of his erratic behavior unrelated to the insurrection. I mean, you've called him an existential threat. You've called him dangerous. You've called him reckless. Yeah, I have, and I believe it. What's your worst fear if he continues to get these intelligence briefings? I'd rather not speculate out loud. I just think that there is no need for him to have that, that intelligence briefing. What value is giving him an intelligence briefing? What impact does he have at all other than the fact he might slip and say something? What value does any former president have in getting these intelligence briefings? Right? You can play this game with anybody. Why did Bill Clinton get it for years and years while his wife was running around peddling influence all over the world? And he was, too. That's right. I would give speeches. My speech was worth five or six hundred thousand dollars because, you know, Kyrgyzstan, North Korea, South Sudan, you know, whatever totalitarian regime wanted to pay good old Bill some money. He could feel their pain. Not really, but they got into the Clintons got intel briefings. Obama gets intel briefings, but no courtesy extended to Trump by Biden. Of course. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. I oppose the banning of words. I should be very clear about this. I oppose the banning of words. I think that that is always problematic. And let me explain. There are certainly times when the usage of a word is inappropriate, unethical, even immoral. And you can make moral judgments about people by the way they use words, right? They, they have meaning and, and that if you, you know, uh, just, just, just for an example, um, you know, to call somebody who has a developmental, uh, developmental disability a certain word that's meant to disparage, is a uniquely immoral, cruel, and and stupid thing to do. Um, 
But that doesn't mean that the usage of that same word, uh, in this case, the, the R word, you know, you could, you could refer to, uh, so you could refer to the uh, lack of funding for this company could retard the progress of its vaccine development efforts, right? That's different. So that's the proper usage of a word that in a different context with different intent could be really wrong and really heinous. But what we've now transitioned into as a society, we've been forced into this by the totalitarian left, and make no mistake about it, this is their doing, is that there are words that the mere utterance of, and there's one in particular, and we all know what it is, if you even say the word in any context, you are to be punished severely. You, you have transgressed. Now, some people are allowed to say the word, constantly all the time they're allowed to say it in music video they're allowed to say it to their their friends they're allowed to call other people the word but i cannot use it not only is it restricted in radio i could not use it nor could many other people listening to this in private life even to refer to it as a word so for example if i told people you know you shouldn't you know what what do we do about the usage of the the n-word in uh works of literature from the past like huckleberry finn for example this has come up this has been a debate what should we do if i actually use and i by the way i can't use the word i'm i'm restricted the same way that everybody else is i could never i can never utter it i could never say it out loud on 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 pain of destruction and humiliation uh, and I completely disagree with this, by the way. I think this is totalitarian insanity. All right. You should be able, anyone should be able to say any word in a certain context or for a certain reason. Is a court stenographer who has to, you know, who has to say back to a defense attorney what was said, let's say. Or if someone is reading out in a court of law, what was said during a violent exchange, let's say, for, an, for a murder trial. And that person says, do you not, do you say the actual word? Or no, you can't say the actual word. This is a forced bending of the knee. This is all about power. This is wrong. It's wrong that this is done. Banning words is something that should not happen in a free society. Holding people accountable for the misuse or the abuse of words to attack or hurt people, is a, that's a different thing. But the very word itself should not be treated as 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 effectively a a, a sin in and of itself, a, a, an act of uh, of grotesque moral obtuseness. Now, why am I talking about as a general proposition? I think this is important. But why am I talking about this? Well, there's a New York Times writer named Donald McNeil, and he resigned on Friday. He resigned on Friday last week. Because it was it came out somehow at the New York Times. This guy had been working at the New York Times for over 40 years. And he was on a, a trip in Peru where with, with a bunch of high school kids and someone said something to him about someone else said and he used the term in reference 
Here, let, let me tell you exactly what he what he wrote, because this is from McNeil himself. This was in his apology. Still had to resign. Still effectively fired. After 40 years, this guy's fired. Here's what he wrote. Quote, to the staff of the Times, on a 2019 New York Times trip to Peru for high school students, I was asked by a dinner, I was asked at a dinner by a student whether I thought a classmate of hers should have been suspended for a video she had made as a 12-year-old in which she used a racial slur. To understand what was in the video, I asked if she had called someone else the slur or whether she was rapping or quoting a book title. In asking the question, I used the slur itself. I should not have done that. Originally, I thought the context in which I used this ugly word could be defended. I now realize it cannot. It is deeply offensive and hurtful. The fact that I even thought I could defend it itself showed extraordinarily bad judgment. For that, I apologize. To the students on the trip, I extend my sincerest apology, but my apology needs to be broader than that. My lapse of judgment has hurt my colleagues in science. The hundreds of people who trusted me to work with them closely during this pandemic, the team at The Daily that turned to me during this frightening year, and the whole institution, which puts its confidence in me and expected better. So for offending my colleagues and for anything I've done to hurt the times, which is an institution I love and whose mission I believe in, I am sorry I let you all down. I mean, a a groveling, really sad apology from this guy. I'm the worst person ever. Here's the thing. I do not believe that he did anything wrong. Because I do not believe in the banning of Someone saying a word in any and all context. I think this is totalitarian madness. I disagree with this. And, you know, that, that, then you get into this where I, I always wanted to know. I, I've heard plenty of people who are Latino use the word. And I would say, I always want to know. I'm like, is that, is that, do, what are the rules on that? Does anyone, is there a clear ruling on that? Is that allowable? Okay. Are Asian Americans allowed to use the word or no? Do we, okay, probably not. How does all that work? This this is this is madness. And you know you know why he was fired? You know why they they pushed him in? Uh pushed him out rather? Um because uh he, they said that it didn't matter it didn't matter that he had no uh, no negative or intent. Intent doesn't Matter became the rallying cry within the New York Times. Okay, intent doesn't matter, they say. Well, if you're going to blame people for their usage of words and you're going to take intent out of it, we are all just living in this totalitarian absurdity where the power mad left gets to determine who's destroyed for any reason, anytime they want. And that's, of course, what they want. This is about power. This is not about social cohesion, morality, decency, justice, fairness. It's not about any of those things, ultimately. They'll say it's about those things. This is really about power. The power to, to destroy lives based upon the utterance of a word is an extreme kind of power, and it's one that some people on the left have seized for themselves. And and this this incident with Donald McNeil, I mean, this is it's appalling that they've done this to this guy. It would be like if someone said to me, if I'm a teacher. 
and and someone came up to me and said so and so just just uh you know called me the you know the n-word and then i went up to the principal's office or the dean let's say as the teacher and i said so and so just said the following word and quoted someone right you are quoting someone but if you quote them and use the actual word you're destroyed what sense does that make? Oh, I know this is the is we've created this thing where it's it's a word that's worse than any other word in the history of all words. And uh, I mean, go look at the history of of World War II and what was done to uh, Jews in in Europe and the slurs that exist against Jewish people. Treated as nowhere near, nowhere near the severity. I mean, severe still, you're getting a lot of trouble, as you should, but you know, if you use it in, in a way that's meant to disparage or attack people or, or you know, is used as a slur. But my point is merely that quoting what someone else says uh, c- cannot be the basis for ruining someone's life and ruining someone's career. Okay, quoting it in a context where you're just trying to establish what happened. Right? That's, but this is about control mechanisms, and this is about keeping people on notice that you, that that the left the power structure of identity politics and intersectionality gets to determine the very words you use you are only allowed to speak about things in a way that the left says is is okay or else you will pay the price and there's even an, another example of this that I want to get to I spoke briefly about the R word as I said you can you can speak in general terms about something, you know, to retard the progress of vaccination research, you can say that. But if you call someone the R word who has a developmental disability, you know, that that's and I mean, of course, you don't need me to tell that's just so awful. It's an awful thing to do. But notice the word itself isn't entirely banned. It's the it's the malevolent usage of the word that will get you in trouble but the banning itself of a word is a different thing. There are reporters out there who all they do now is try to seek out people and punish them for saying the wrong word. And we have one such story to to get to with this. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Follow Buck on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Glenn Greenwald is a man of the left. Um, He is very far left on a whole bunch, whether it's usage of the military, uh, social issues, you name it. I mean, he's a leftist. An area, an area where he is principled, and he also he loves dogs, and I appreciate the work he does to rescue dogs, and I love dogs too, so we got that in common. Um, but an area where he is principled is on uh, free speech, and this used to be one of the only parts of liberalism that was truly liberal. There was a time during which you could expect someone who was a Democrat to have, at, at some level, a respect for the need to allow for free speech. That was a part of the whole thing. Well, that has gone away entirely. Journalists now really believe that their, their job is to police. They are the, the censors. They are to police speech. And what uh, Lawrence, Taylor Lawrence did is another example of this. And Glenn Greenwald, on his Substack, writes about it at some length, is falsely accused Mark Andreessen, who's the co-founder of Netscape, you know, Netscape Navigator, 
and co-founder and partner of Andreessen Horowitz, a huge Silicon Valley venture capital firm, of of uh, calling someone a a uh, a retard. That is the that is the claim that was made, and that's not what happened. That was never said, and yet here we are uh, listening to this and talking about it because she thinks, as a New York Times tech journalist, that her job is to find that someone said a bad word in a, in a somewhat private setting of a of a group conversation online, but it wasn't posted publicly. It was on one of these forums, I uh, forget Clubhouse forum, and uh, and then essentially try to get this guy ruined, and it wasn't even true. It wasn't even true, and so you know you'd think you you have multiple layers of bad here, you have multiple layers of this is gross. One is, I mean, you don't even have your facts right, and two is what kind of a a professional, what kind of an adult human being goes around trying to cause immense problems for people based upon an utterance in what is a a private conversation and thinks that that's their that's their job meaning that it's not like she just stumbled across this and oh, she's trying to find this kind of thing wants to bring someone down and and ruin them i mean here's how greenwald writes about this quote a new and rapidly growing journalistic beat has arisen over the last several years that can be described as an unholy mix of junior high hall monitor tattling and Stasi-like citizen surveillance. It is half adolescent and half malevolent. Its primary objectives are control, censorship, and the destruction of reputations for fun and power. Though its epicenter is the largest corporate media outlets, it is the very antithesis of journalism. Greenwald goes on. I've written before about one particularly toxic strain of this authoritarian reporting, Teams of journalists at three of the most influential corporate media outlets, CNN, media reporters Brian Stelter and Oliver Darcy, NBC's disinformation space unit, Ben Collins and Brandy Zadrozny, and the tech reporters of the New York Times, Mike Isaac, Kevin Roos, and Shira Frankel. They devote the bulk of their journalism to searching for online spaces where they believe speech and conduct rules are being violated flagging them, and then pleading that punitive action be taken, banning censorship content regulation after school detention. These hall monitor reporters are a major factor explaining why tech monopolies, which, for reasons of self-interest, never wanted the responsibility to censor, now do so with abandon and seemingly arbitrary blunt force. They are shamed by the world's loudest media companies when they do not. I mean, this is a reminder of what I've been saying to you. The the biggest opponents, the most dangerous opponents in modern America and America today of free speech are the people who are supposed to be its most ardent defenders. Journalists, people who make a living writing and communicating about news, about ideas, about reality, are the worst offenders right now in America when it comes to how not only how much they want to censor, but in how they betray their charge and how they, they betray the essence of who they really are in all of this, right? They're supposed to be the defenders and they're actually the violators. 
And, and this is something that we have never really experienced before, or at least we've never been aware of it before as a society the way that we are right now. Free speech means the freedom to say things that some people aren't going to like, and it also means a culture where we tolerate that there will be disagreement, there will be vehement opposition, but we don't try to silence and we don't try to ruin and destroy. You know, attacking ideas, not people, is one way to go about this. When you're, when you're going after somebody because they said something and didn't even actually even say it in, and, and decontextualize it and then officially take the position that intent doesn't matter, you're just setting up, to, to borrow from Greenwald there, the Stasi-like surveillance state run by journalists first and foremost, and, and then the social media companies are the ones who act on all of this. It's appalling, it's wrong, and it's going to lead the country down a very dark path. It needs to be called out. You need to be angry at the people who do this. I am. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Time for the Roll Call. Yeah, producer Mark. Funky music from producer Mark. Making all the funky sounds. Yeah, there we go. Producer Mark, how was your Super Bowl, sir? You and you and Mrs. Mark and whoever else you're watching with what? How did it go? I mean, the company was nice. The game kind of sucked. It was like the most boring football game I've ever seen in my life, really. I mean, it was cool to see Tom Brady put on a clinic. Uh, it, was, it was fun to watch Tom Brady teach the younger generations about how to kick butt in football. But other than that, yeah, I mean, you know what I mean? You got to give the Tampa Bay defense some credit. They uh, stopped Pat Mahomes as one of the best of all time. But, I mean, you got to give credit to Brady, too. And it was just boring. As a football fan, I hate a boring Super Bowl. Because you want that to be a spectacle, you want it to be, you want it to live up to the hype, and this one was one of the most hyped Super Bowls in the last 10 years, and it, it didn't live up. It's amazing, isn't it? People thought this was the best possible matchup. I mean, I, I did a fair amount of listening to my dad, who actually knows about football, before the game, he came over. I had my mom, my dad, the Snow Princess, and uh, Tulu, Tulubaloo, little Tulula, and uh, we were, it was just the four of us here watching, and sure enough, uh, you know, he said that this was the one that everybody had been anticipating, expected. And, you know, it just it just wasn't it just wasn't good. I don't know what else to say. It just wasn't yeah. a good game. There wasn't really even any super exciting plays. It was just kind of Tom Brady clinical from the line of scrimmage. And as you said, the the Tampa Bay defense just just squashing uh, all things thrown at them by the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah, they, they didn't let Mahomes have any time to throw the ball, and it showed. I mean, and at the end, Mahomes was trying to do everything he could. He made some phenomenal throws that ended up being incompletions, but he's only one man. Let's talk about the halftime show for a second, shall we? Oh, did I you fixed. watch the halftime show, or I mean, did you go to make more nachos? I, I watched it, yeah. What did you think? I mean, it wasn't the worst halftime show I've ever seen. But oh, I think best. it was. You don't think it was the worst one ever? Could you no. think of a worse one? Uh, not off the top of my head, but it was fine. Like, it was Did you recognize that the fellows who were dancing, and many pointed this out on social media as soon as it happened because it really did look like it, the fellows who were dancing around Mr. Weekend, 
uh, had what looked like athletic support apparel on their faces. Yes, uh, I, I've looked into this. I asked my uh, pop culture experts. Apparently, the weekend for years have had rumors about plastic surgery. So that was a nod to, about him having plastic surgery. So that was a nod to that. I mean, apparently. it looked it looked like they had it looked like they had distributed jock straps to everybody there and that they didn't know where they went. That's what it looked like. Yes. Yes. Well, fair enough. To well, be fair, mis- they couldn't do much because because of COVID, they the NFL didn't want the huge stage having to be erected on the field. So that's why they didn't do that much with the special effects and whatnot. But I, I like that there's the, there's one song by Mr. Weekend that I like. Uh, and it was the first one that he did. I believe it's about a star boy. But the other songs I did not really know slash did not really like if I did know them. So I also was waiting. Isn't it kind of required, producer Mark? You'd know this. Don't they have to have Aerosmith come out for a duet at some point? Like, isn't that every year at the Super Bowl? I thought, you know, don't don't they bring out Steven Tyler and uh, the other guy, Joe, whatever his name is, and they do a whole. It's not always Aerosmith, but yes, usually there is another guest. I'm not sure why. They, especially, apparently, The weekend has a lot of songs with other artists, so I was surprised. Everyone in my household was waiting. Who's going to come out? And then nobody did. But I, I, I just find that in, in, my, in my experience, let me as it is, uh, they usually try to bring out an artist who is familiar to and beloved by the boomers. And, yes. uh, you know, like, like, like they roll the Rolling Stones out in wheelchairs and, you know, Mick Jagger's like, make a ground man cry, you know, <laughs> the whole thing, you know? Yeah. It's, like, it's like when they brought out the Red Hot Chili Peppers a couple years ago with, I forget who the main act was, but they brought out the Chili Peppers for the older crowd. Wow. I, I feel like the, the Chili Peppers are, are my... not older crowd, but yeah, it, it's our generation, it's... but still. Ah, ouch. That hurts. It does. It's funny. I, I, see, I see Gwen Stefani now, and she has a very, you know, she was in one of the Super Bowl commercials. And I remember when she was just the top of pop music for a little while in the mid 90s with no doubt Tragic Kingdom was the album. And and this is when people actually used to know album names. And I feel like kids see her now and they're like, who's that? Isn't that the woman who sort of tries hip hop a little bit sometimes really badly? And, you know, yeah, that's right. But Madonna always is there to be the creepier older lady who also thinks that she's still is cool and hip and young. So there's that. I think Madonna's pretty much stopped. Is she? Has she done anything in the last like 10 years? Not recently, recently, but she was still, you know, there was still stuff going on on those stages for a while when it was not, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Wasn't good. So anyway, so yeah, the Super Bowl wasn't, uh, wasn't, what what was your least, what was your most and least favorite Super Bowl commercial? You pay attention to the commercials. Yeah, because I gotta, I gotta see all the social justice messaging so I can slam it on radio. Obviously. Oh, obviously. Yeah, no, I don't yeah. pay attention to that. I'm, I'm watching the game. If a commercial interests me, I'll put, put my head up. But you know, I'm usually looking at Twitter, seeing what people are saying about the game. Huh. But I'm a football huh. fan, so. All right. You're not. It, 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 that's the two different types of people watching the game. Indeed. All right. Well. Let's uh, let's get in the mix here. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com for anybody who is uh, looking to send us their thoughts. Probably not at this point on the Super Bowl anymore because I feel like people are are, uh, you know, they're doing their thing. Uh, 
other things going on in the country. They don't really feel the need to get that that deep into into this. So, yeah. But if you want to send us Super Bowl thoughts, by all means, you can do you can do that, too. So let's get to the latest here. We have Eric writes for the DOJ definition of terrorism. Anyone who participated in the events that often unfolded over the summer would be defined as a terrorist. Based on sheer numbers alone for the DOJ, Biden's DOJ, domestic terrorism is a problem of the left. These illogical conclusions drawn from a false premise can be disposed of quite easily. Where is the messaging for Republicans? Democrats speak out no matter how wrong they are, yet Republicans are on the side of truth in these matters and fail to confront the basic structure of the Democrat argument, at least that I've seen. Eric. You make a very good point here, and it's one that's going to be talked about a lot this week with this impeachment trial going on. And and it's as follows. Uh, You have the Democrats always fighting this notion that anything that they do is terrorism. Anything that they're engaged in uh, as a political movement, including the use of force, destruction and violence, isn't terrorism. It's a an uprising against injustice. But what that fails to take into account, and this is something I I do know quite a bit about from my professional past, what that fails to take into account is that all terrorist groups think that they are acting in the name of some higher power, some greater justice. What what are the what are the classic reasons for terror uh, as we know them? There is uh, there there are groups that are religious extremist terrorist groups, right? Jihadism comes to mind and they believe that they are fighting uh, a struggle to take back lands that were Islamic lands. This is the jihadist philosophy to take back places like Spain, Andalusia, to take back parts of the world they believe should always be Islamic. And then in places where they are not the majority to demand special rights and, and 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 separate law, essentially. Until they can, through continued, uh, popu- you know, continued population growth, become the majority and then stamp out other religions. It's effectively a colonial project in the name of a religious extremism. Right. But they think they're doing something that is just they're fighting the invaders. I mean, there's many different flavors of jihadism, depending on where you are. Sometimes it's to throw the invaders out of a specific country. But other times it's to bring the Western Christian world to its knees and to gain concessions in their quest for the creation of a global Ummah, right? So that's one, one version of terrorism. Another classic terrorist, uh, classic terrorist rationale is that to create your own country. I mean, separatist movements. If you look back at a lot of the terrorist groups of the of the seventies, um, you know, you look at the, even like the Basque separatists. I mentioned Spain before. The Basque separatists in Spain. Uh, you look at the Irish Republican Army and uh, separating from uh, the. Uh, the British, you know, they're, they're, these are different places where they were using violence because they claimed they were trying to overcome oppression. And the only way they could overcome that oppression was to engage in this this concerted campaign that even sometimes would be against innocence and would be unjust in the immediate sense. But they would try to justify in the larger sense. But it's still terrorism. And, and that's where you see that the left manages to create this. This wall where they say, no, no, it's this is like civil disobedience of the civil rights movements. And I'm sorry, but somebody 
uh, throwing a Molotov cocktail into a cop car is not civil disobedience. Somebody breaking into a Louis Vuitton or a Chanel store to steal tens of thousands of dollars of merchandise is not a social justice act. You know, beating people in front of their own homes because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time during a anti-police violence protest is not justified because there are videos out there of people doing things as police officers that are excessive force. But but they have they have made these standards very hard for the for the public to to keep uh, in mind. They've made these standards very hard for people to um, be able to differentiate. They intentionally make this complicated. They intentionally make this hard, hard for people to understand. They say, well, hold on a second. Why is it that the protests over the summer for BLM and that continue? I mean, in D.C. over the weekend, they had Antifa lunatics running around. Why is one okay, the other is not? Why are those okay? But when the right has a riot, we all condemn it and we all say we don't do that. They don't do that on the left. Someone needs to explain this, but they, they won't explain it because the only way they could would be to uh, accept that what they're saying is, is, is a double standard. And we all know it is. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. All right, roll call continues here. Richard. Buck, Birkenstocks can only be worn with socks. The cork bottoms make your feet feel all brown, uh, make your feet all brown, rather, and it absorbs the sweat, and then they stink. I thought I was the only one. On more serious matters, this college debt forgiveness is nuts. I married a beautiful woman who has a Ph.D. in history. She makes fun of education Ph.D.s as well. Her student loan started over $100,000. We've been working second jobs and side hustles and chunking away at it. Uh, It is so unfair for us to be working our butts off, throwing everything we can at this mountain, and others who are defunct or not working on it get theirs forgiven. Notice that they say federal student loans. There are private nonprofits who deal with student loans and take them off the Fed's hands. Those won't be forgiven. We have those loans, and they didn't follow the president's executive orders for interest or payments during COVID. That's what we get when we have someone who's concerned with equity, and not equality shields high. Well, Richard, just remember that the Democrat plan here is to do what is most politically powerful for them. It's actually not ultimately about fairness. You need to know that. You need to remember that. It's really not about what's fair. They don't really care about what's fair. They just say that. As for Birkenstocks, I think I have to defer to your expertise. I, I think I just have to say that you, know, you, are, you are the expert on this one. Um, although now I kind of want to get a pair and try this out. But yeah, I guess you have to wear them with socks. But I've definitely, Producer Mark, haven't you seen people with Birkenstocks sockless? Maybe yeah. circa 1996 at a fish concert, but still. Yeah, if you go to the Joshua Tree, you can't wear socks with them. Oh, nice. Good, good point. Ray. Hey, Producer Mark and Buck. We listen to you on KFYRFM 99.7 Bismarck, North Dakota. Woo! Bismarck ND Team Buck in the house. Thanks for your support for the military. I'm a a retired Air Force cop. Back the blue. You're darn right, Ray. In my house, I was brought up a Democrat. 
I've changed that now. After seeing what the liberal Democrats have done to ruin America, I'm now a conservative Republican. I agree with you all, and I'm proud to say I'm a big Buck Sexton supporter. I listen every night. Thank you for spreading the conservative word throughout the nation. Continue to fight the good fight and shields high. Uh, thank you very much, Ray. I, I really appreciate your support, man, that, that we're honored here. And thank you so much for listening. And we do we do what we can to make it the best show we can for you. And it means a lot, sir. So appreciate it. We appreciate you. Ben, hey, Buck. Last week, you talked about the importance and satisfaction of learning a life skill. I absolutely agree with you. When I was younger, my hobby was collecting hobbies. I had way too many to achieve any level of proficiency. As I've aged, I've narrowed down my efforts to what I call the three B's, barbecue, bacon, and beer. My low and slow barbecue game is getting better, and my kids have developed a love of smoked meats, especially ribs. Buckboard bacon, is that a thing, is made from the pork shoulder rather than the belly. It's everything you love about bacon without all the fat. Lastly, homebrewing beer is easier than you may think, and it is a tremendously satisfying hobby. Cheers and shields high from the great state of Alaska. Ben, those are all great hobbies, man. Creating something, making something, learning those kinds of skills and being able to put them to use. Those are all, you know, very powerful things. And, and I, you know, I wish I had more time to even do more, to, to go beyond the hobbies I currently have. Right now, my hobbies are taking care of the dog, trying to get to the gym, cooking when I can, uh, you know, I wish I could say shooting, but I haven't been shooting in a long time because there's no ranges and nor is there gun ownership here in New York. So hoping that'll change at some point, meaning I'll have to move. New York's not going to change. Uh, I used to do a lot more tennis. I just don't have the time these days. It's, it's hard. You know, people say, oh, you make time for things. Yeah, you make time for things, but you also got to trade off things. And right now I'm so focused on what I'm trying to do here that those there aren't a lot of trade offs I'm willing to make. There aren't a lot of places where I really... There's not a lot of places where I'm uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of fat to trim, although I do have to spend more time in the gym. But you know what I mean? Metaphorically speaking, uh, there's not a lot of places where I got excess time, but I'm looking to looking to change that up in the future. We'll see. Team, thank you all so much. Great to be with you, as always. Until tomorrow. Shields high.